lifepodcasts.fm. This podcast is a Prime Media Broadcasting production. People are reshaping the mindset of the masses. Africa State of Mind. Hey, on this episode of Africa State of Mind, I'm joined in studio by Acha Leke, the chairman of McKenzie Africa's region. Acha is a co-founder and member of the Global Advisory Council of the African Leadership Academy, a co-educational boarding school that aims to develop the next generation of African leaders. He shares of the issues he believes are the root causes of African crisis. Leadership is at the root cause of what is, of, of our issues, right? Okay. Leadership has failed Africa. His research also came up with some interesting solutions and I quizzed him about them. And we looked at companies and we showed that, uh, again, this is, you know, through numbers, <laughs> numbers again, yeah. that companies that have more women in the management team or on the board perform better. Acha also revealed that he dabbled in the nightclub scene. Partingers, right? I used to own a nightclub. Right? <laughs> Which nightclub? Divine Lounge. He is also one of the most well-connected people in the world. So naturally, I asked him who is one of the most prominent people on the African continent that he can phone, and he knows that they'll always pick up his call on the other side. I mean, I guess, I guess the person who comes to mind is Aliko Dangote. That's the person who comes to mind who. Who I think if I call, he would answer, and you I think? don't have his cell phone number. And the others, you're like, I don't know. The others have to go through the assistants. <laughs> but that's cool. It's cool. Thank you so much for taking time out. No, it's great. Thanks for having me. Um, so I want to just uh, get a little bit of perspective in terms of when you were growing up. Uh, did you grow up in Cameroon? Did you grow up? Where did you grow up? And what was your upbringing like? Well, I was born in Cameroon, mm-hmm. uh, but when I was about six months, I think roughly six months, we moved to Canada. Mm-hmm. My parents went to school there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I grew up in Montreal, and that's where I actually went to school in French. So my, I went to education in French. But we spoke English at home, so we're from the English side of Cameroon. Okay. Um, but I always say once they finished, we were there for about eight years or so, and once they finished the studies, they took the first flight back to Cameroon yeah. to put the newly acquired skills to use for the benefit of the country. Mm-hmm. And so then I went back, uh, spent about six to eight years in Cameroon, um, and then I went to sort of high school in Belgium and then to the U.S. for university. Okay, so you basically had like the four, just so everybody knows. The reason my French is not great is because my education was not in French. <laughs> oh, that's it, that's <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, that's it, that's it, exactly. So um, just in terms of your family, uh, did you come from a diplomatic kind of family or was it just a case of just a typical kind of... Yeah, it was a typical. I mean, my dad's a gynecologist, so okay. he did his residency in gynecology. My mom is an immunologist, so she did a PhD. Uh-huh. In, um, so more of a scientific kind of family. Yeah. Um, and they all wanted us to... My, my dad wanted us to be doctors, but uh-huh. my sister, were four of us, one of my sisters is a gynecologist, so yeah. he's happy about that. And then your decision to go into what I describe as numbers, because that is the worst <laughs> part of my life. I'm so bad with... So everybody, anyone who can do things with financing or numbers, I'm always like... I feel like that's a special, almost Still. like gifty... Yeah. Well, it's less numbers. I mean, so so I so I did a PhD in numbers. I did a PhD <laughs> in electrical engineering. Yeah. Um, uh, in the U.S. and then and you know I was either I was at Stanford and so a lot of people that go into startups. Um, actually, my advisor had started a company, which he had sold to Texas Instruments for five hundred million dollars. He had made fifty million dollars, and this was in '97, right? So we're all like, "Oh my gosh, we want to do startups." So I, I thought I did, I knew I didn't want to teach. Mm-hmm. So I said either I would. Um, do a startup, or I heard about this consulting thing, which seemed interesting. And so I um, actually wanted to work, I said, let me try consulting and see if I like it. Mm-hmm. And I spent a summer, uh, at the time McKenzie didn't hire PhDs for the summer, 
I eventually was able to get an offer with McKinsey in South Africa. Oh, wow. So it was the first time I came to South Africa. Yeah. And uh, I'm dating myself. This was summer, actually winter here <laughs> of 98. Yeah. And I spent three months on a project here and I loved it. Yeah. And then I had an offer to come back here full time mm. when I finished my PhD. But I decided at the time nobody was moving to the continent. Mm. right? And so I decided to start in the U.S. And that's how I joined McKinsey. And I thought I'd do this for two years and then go back to the valley and mm-hmm. do some startup, but less on the exactly. engineering side, but on the yeah. business side. And 19 years later, here I am. Here you are. You're still stuck here. Now, um, before we talk about the, the next 19 years, I did want to ask, um, because you went to Stanford and because there's this whole, I think like now things are a little bit different where a lot of um, Africans in America feel as though they want to be able to come back home, you know. But for you, being an African in America at that particular time, and I have to separate the phrases, um, what was it for you, what, what was that whole experience like from a cultural perspective? Yeah. No, there were a couple of things I always say, you know, once I, once I got there, I realized there were a number of Americans who knew about Africa more than I did. So I knew about Cameroon oh, and yeah. our colonial masters, the mm. French, but they didn't really teach us about the rest of Africa that much, right? And mm. so that's where this whole passion for Africa came. I said, why do all these people who you know, are not even from here, they know much more about the broader continent mm. than I do. Um, the second was a bit to your point around, you know, wanting to come back, um, because at the time, nobody was coming back to the continent, mm-hmm. right? You know, you know, Africa was known for its war, poverty, corruption. And I always said, you know, you know, and we always said, look, you know, we'll stay in the U.S. and then get a job. Even your parents would tell you that, right? And, yeah, it's like, don't go back. Don't go back, you know, send money home, <laughs> come back on the summer, Christmas, right? When everybody's coming back and, you know, show yeah. off a bit. And uh, uh, But I always thought, you know, if those of us who had had the opportunity to experience how things operated differently mm-hmm. in the West got mm-hmm. that. If we didn't come back to change things, how would things change? Mm. And I always argue until today, I argue that we have uh, a responsibility and I would say an obligation to change things. Mm. And that's why I decided to at least test the waters yeah. with the summer at McKenzie and then eventually to come back. Okay. And then now just in, in terms of the um, the shift that we've seen in terms of where how people think about Africa, you know, what do you think has been... What do you think has been the reason why there's been a big shift with a lot of people seeing Africa as being more of a place of opportunity and, you know, settling down and a place of growth versus a place of let me come in in December and then go home. That whole summer's coming home. Exactly, but, exactly. Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot has changed, right? I mean, at the time, the reality is that we were going through a back patch as a continent. We mm-hmm. need to recognize we were barely growing, right? We were growing at, what, 1%, 2% population growth is about 25 So net-net, we're not growing you know, there are a lot of conflicts and all of that, right? I think a lot has changed, right? We've gone through uh, a big growth spurt, mm. which has been great, and I think which um, was exciting uh, for folks to be part of that. Uh, things got worse in the U.S. and in in, 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 mm. in the West, so people started to say, well, you know, the, the Africa is not that bad yeah. <laughs> uh, relative like... to the opportunities they had. And some actually just, you know, got laid off. And, had, and I always say, you know, I think... You know, a good thing about Trump in the U.S. is that it's forcing more Africans to yeah. come back, right? Yeah. So I think there's some positives around that uh but also i think you know we started a number of people started to you know tell more of the story of africa and that's what i've had an issue with for a long time which mm. is when people talk about africa we talk about aid india or china they typically talked about the business opportunities mm. and when they spoke about africa it was always about the challenges the conflicts um and uh, and corruption and all of that and so i think the narrative around the continent uh, had started to change mm. and is changing there's still a long way to go mm. 
And, and, and people came and started to realize you can actually, you know, do good and do well. You can make good money here yeah. and also make a difference. Yeah. And now just with regards to the continent, I think one of the things that always comes up is this conversation about leadership. Um, you know, I actually saw uh, somebody tweeted something and then somebody responded and basically said, OK, so the tweet was around you know, like uh, uh, an older demographic kind of being the leaders of Africa. And the person retweeted and basically said, perhaps we should be looking more at having leaders that are fit to run versus just thinking that if you're of a certain age, you can or cannot be a leader. But we've had a huge change. I mean, when I look at some of the leaders in Africa, um, one of them that I think is doing a great job is Dr. Abi Ahmed. Everyone's going to be like, oh, she said the name again. I say, yes, I did. Um, for you, who are, who are like, what countries are you seeing um leaders coming into place who understand what's important in order to ensure that their country and the continent grows and, you know, takes a different kind of route. So it's more sustainable mm. for younger people. Which which kind of leaders or countries would you point out? Yeah, I mean, I'll start by saying, you know, I fundamentally believe that leadership is at the root cause of, what is, of, of our issues, right? Okay. Leadership has failed Africa. Mm-hmm. And that's why uh, we actually built a leadership academy, uh, because we said, um, if you think of corruption, you think of some of the challenges we had on the economic side, it really comes down to just having mm-hmm. bad leaders. We mm-hmm. had bad leaders. And, and and we always said, you know, we, you know, the future of Africa is too important to leave the emergence of good leaders to chance. Mm-hmm. So let's actually yeah. find a yeah. way to create these leaders we wanted, and that's why we founded uh, the African Leadership Academy. Um, so that's one. Um, two is, we always, you know, I think we've had, you know, three generations of leaders, right? We always say we've had the those who brought us independence, right? So the Kwame Krumahs of the world mm. and the Areas of the world that, you know, we, till today we, we thank yeah. for that, yeah. right? Then we had a generation that basically destroyed all those gains, right? You know, we know who they are. We don't need to talk about them. Yeah. And then we've had the last generation, and it's been probably in the last 10, 15 years, where people have really come and said, let's sort of bring back growth uh, to the continent. And mm. there are a number who've actually done that in, in different ways, right? Mm. I think, you know, you talk about Ethiopia, you know, uh, you know, we're all proud of him. I, I love what President Kagame has done. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, people can have different perspectives on, mm-hmm. you know, his uh, humanitarian record. But from an economic perspective of the country, mm-hmm. you know, you, can, you you cannot argue with what he's done mm-hmm. over the last, you know, 25 years for Rwanda, right? And you see a number of, of, of other leaders like that in, in different countries. You see what, you know, uh, what how what how the transformation of of Senegal now you look at Cote d'Ivoire was again mm. on the economic side look what's happened in the last ten yeah. years yeah uh, Cote d'Ivoire is incredible also uh, yeah. and now it's been it's been an amazing mm. journey economically the last ten years again they mm. have the issues on the political side of that kind of stuff but economically uh, and you see more of those and I think what happens once you have some of these good leaders what mm. happens they they attract good people to work with them other countries you know emulate them mm-hmm. right and so it brings you know it, it sort of I think it, it plays a fundamental role in reviving the whole the whole continent mm. and now just with regards to um you know looking at uh, at leaders and everything because even when you said about with kagame and such and i know that there's people have a love other side relationship with him but nobody can doubt the work that has been done in rwanda but now because okay say with the leadership academy that you have started i think you started with fred right fred, exactly. yeah, yeah so the the african leadership academy um how important do you think um education is in line with entrepreneurship and I ask that question because I also feel that now we sit in a place where everybody's like I'm going to become an entrepreneur I don't you know I don't need to do anything else so it's almost as though on one hand people think that I'm just going to come up with a great idea like a startup and I'm going to you know create a lot of jobs but then I always worry that we're going to be in a situation where other skills just kind of fall by the wayside because there seems to be no emphasis on the importance of education and ensuring that people in other sectors are also kind of growing and developing yeah. 
No, we think we think it's absolutely fundamental. And so when uh, actually four of us started ALS, it's Fred, myself, Chris, and and, and Peter. And, 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 you know, we called it a leadership academy, right? Mm-hmm. Not a high school, not, you know, because we, that's exactly what we wanted to do or what, we're, or what we wanted to set up, which is, you know, when we, we, we did a lot of work looking at, at other education institutions across the continent, and we felt the three things that they missed out on, right? One is this whole Africa, bringing really the Africa at the center and teaching people about Africa. Um, entrepreneurship, we actually think there are a lot of skills you can learn about entrepreneurship, to your mm-hmm. question. Um, and then leadership, because again, leadership is what has failed Africa. So, in addition to the A levels curriculum, we created our own proprietary curriculum around leadership, mm. entrepreneurship, and African studies. And that's sort of what we brought together mm. uh, at ALA. Um, and 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 if you look at the continent today, the issue is, you know, we, we don't, we just don't have enough jobs, right, for the people who are coming to the mm. workplace. And if you've projected, we've done uh, some work at McKinsey a few years ago, a uh, report we call Africa at Work. Yes. Where looked, even if you project it, you know, we will never be able to create enough jobs, right? And so the reality is we need to be able to create entrepreneurs who would you know, create jobs for themselves, but also um, hire others, mm. right? So entrepreneurship is critical to the to the job situation on the continent. Mm. Now, I think, you know, you can just set up one day and say, I have this idea and let me go do it. You can actually learn some of the skills, right? Some of the fundamental skills we teach around problem solving, around working in teams, around communicating, you know. Mm-hmm. So those are some of the fundamental skills you need to learn, even as an entrepreneur, to be successful. Yeah. And now just, you know, I always hear that there's always these numbers. And so you're going to help me just try and so that I don't keep quoting wrong numbers. Because I think I heard a lo- somebody saying different things I've heard um, people mention. So on one that within the next 50 years or something, Africa will have the largest workforce in the world. Uh, I see. Is that 1.1 billion people. 1.1 billion people. Yeah. Which is of working age, the working age population. Which will be under be the age of? Our working age population is typically, I think, somewhere between sort of 18 and okay. 55 or something. Okay, all right. And then also... And that's larger than China and India, right? Which Absolutely. is incredible, yeah, right? That's going to be in six in 6,000 days, to be exact. Like 6,000 days. My French friend listen, always reminds us. Listen, you know your numbers. Days. You're like, no, listen, it's 6,000 <laughs> days. It's not like... <laughs> It may be a bit less now, but, uh, but yeah, roughly 6,000 days. How, how many years does that translate into? Sorry, I'm exposing myself. It's by 2034. 2034. Exactly. So this is where my education just meant nothing. <laughs> this is, anyway, no, no. So, okay, so there's that. And then also that apparently Africa will be a third population-wide Population-wise, will be a fifth of the world's population. Is that yeah, correct? Yeah. So, so the numbers are very are staggering, right? Mm-hmm. So today, there are about 1.2 billion Africans. Mm-hmm. So one out of every six people in the world is an African. Today. Today. Wow. By 2050, will be two and a half billion, and one out of four in the world will be African. By the turn of the century, 2100, will be four billion. One out of three world citizens will be African. It's staggering. So we are growing in a in an aging world. Right. And uh, you can think of it in a very positive sense, you know, huge Mm -hmm. opportunities. And, you know, we can be sort of, you know, the breadbasket of the world. Mm -hmm. uh, But the massive risk associated with that, Mm -hmm. right, if we can provide opportunities or help people, these 4 billion Mm -hmm. people provide opportunities for themselves, Mm -hmm. there's a huge risk associated with that. Now, I know that you tackle this um, uh, quite a lot with with the reports that uh, McKenzie brings out, you know, on a regular. So how do we 
ensure that we don't lose this amazing opportunity, you know, as Africans, as like as a like a one on one African, because we can talk about it from a policy level and a government level and all of that. But if you're just like an average, like an African and you're just like, look, I want to be sure that I'm not left out. You know, when things change, I want to be sure that I'm in a position where I can uplift myself, my community, my country, you know, um, as an individual. What sort of advice would you give on that particular level? And then from a, a broader perspective, sort yeah. of governmental level. It's when we always come at it from the broader perspective, yeah. <laughs> from the other angle. I mean, you know, uh, at the end of the day, it's an economic issue, mm. right? What, you know, you want people to be able to feel like, um, you know, they have a meaningful job, right? Mm. They can care for themselves and they can care for the family, right? That's really what it comes down to. Um, now, how are you going to get there, right? And there are a number of discussions about, you know, how are you going to get there when you're 4 billion people? Not sure, right? Yeah. But, you know, the path to get there one is actually education. Reading education is critical. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and even if you want to be an entrepreneur, to your point, we think there's some skills you need to learn, right? So really, you know, and that's more on the government side, investing in education, but also on this side, on the individual side, taking that seriously mm-hmm. for yourself and for your family, for your kids. We think that's, that's absolutely critical. Um, second then is thinking through, you know, you know, what kind of job or what kind of work do you want to do, right? Are we believe that the the issue is you know if i if i if i if i ask you what did you study me yes you oh my gosh i'm so embarrassed i studied a ba dramatic arts and i graduated with honors thank you very much okay. <laughs> no great i'm asking that because you know but you're not working in the field you studied i sort of am to you a degree are. okay yeah so most people we ask this all the time most people are not working in the field they study yes yes, right? yes, yes. so i studied engineering i'm a consultant today yeah. right and very few people like doctors lawyers uh-huh. maybe people in the arts <laughs> will do it but very people study so we think uh, even by the time you study things and you finish if you you know if you're 10 years ago you were studying coding you'll learn about yeah. pascal right mm-hmm. uh, and that's 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 a language that's up, that's obsolete today so by the time you finish studying, things have changed, mm-hmm. right? So we think what's more important is to learn how to learn and, sure. and to I continuously agree. learn, right? Mm-hmm. So you have the skills of, you know, how can I adapt myself? Something new comes along. How can I adapt myself to that, right? And so encouraging people to think more about that, right? And so if you think of it, in the universities uh, that we started, again, the African Leadership University, a lot of our, our pushes, you know, we were pushing for these degrees to say, you know, instead of picking a major, you know, um, pick uh, something that's meaningful to you in your life, mm. right? What is the big issue you want to solve in Africa? Like if it's, that, yeah. if it's uh, you know, I want to solve a famine, then you can create your education around that, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so you pick a, a, a you know, meaningful thing for your life versus picking a major. Um, so all this to say, you know, so I think first is really education. Two is think about, you know, what do you want to do within that and how do you then learn learn it? And then three is, um, you know, as part of that, then how do you, you know, either you get into a job or I think in most cases it'll be how do you, you know, start something and uh, and, 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 and and bring people along with mm. you because you don't do this on your own. Yeah. Uh, but in a way where you can do it at scale, right? We have a lot of small businesses that, you know, hire one, two or five people here. The question I always say is, you know, how do you build 10 dangotes, mm. right? How do you build businesses at scale in Africa that are going to employ 20, 30, yes. 40,000 people because that's what that's, that's what, what we need. need. Yeah. Sorry, long answer to your question. No, 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 no problem at all. And then also um, last year um, I was part of this uh, I was on assignment for Africa Connected, so we traveled to different countries just to see how people were doing business. And something that's that stood out that I guess we as Africans always know 
Um, but it was just kind of never always frontlined in that way. There were a few things I'm finding. So one of them was around the informal sector and how it really played such a huge role in terms of being the backbone um, of different economies. And I think I was particularly impressed with what I saw in Kumasi because you could see as the as the city was becoming more urbanized, the, the government there and the, the monarchy was really trying to ensure that the people who were in informal sector were not left out. Mm-hmm. So how, you know, I just want to know what your thoughts are around that. And also because I think that for the most part, women are part of the mm-hmm. informal sector more than any other sector because mm-hmm. they're the ones who go to the market. They're the ones, you know, um, who are involved in that way. So what are your thoughts around that and how we can ensure that this large group of people doesn't get left behind? Because it's on one hand, we can talk about people who will be getting a kind of an education. We can talk about the future of people, but the current people who hold the economy together, how do they not get left behind? No, I think it's a great question. I think that I think the two questions under that, there's one around informal and there's mm. one about just women, yeah. right? So if I tackle both. So on the informal sector, the reality is all the numbers we, we throw out and all of that honestly do not include the informal sector, okay. right? So. Nobody really knows how big it is. Mm. People tell you if you add it to Africa's GDP, Africa, you can double the GDP, it can wow. be 60% higher. It's a big number. Yeah. And you can see it when you go, like, you yes. see the market in Kumasi, you can see that, right? Um, the, the question for many of our government is how do you, over time, formalize it? Because what you want, you actually want these people to be become more formal, right? Mm. Because then what happens <laughs> is, yes, you know, they, they, they play, uh, you first help them formalize their businesses, Right, because right now they have these small shops. Um, you know, they don't get training mm. um, uh, and, and and those kinds of things. So, how do you try to formalize the businesses, bring them into the formal sector? And what you t- typically see is the big companies generally then help provide uh, offtakes from these smaller companies. Right, so it's actually a good thing to bring mm. them into the, in the formal economy. They then contribute to tax revenues, which is helpful for our countries, because then they can actually use that money for the uh, 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 to benefit the, the citizens. But on the other side is, you know, why would they do that, right? They're like, mm. today, you know, I'm in the informal sector. I don't pay taxes. I come in. <laughs> That's the I, big one. No, but, but, the taxes. but also the same government, what would you provide to me, right? You don't, you don't do anything for me. <laughs> exactly. So why yeah. should I come in and, and provide these taxes? So on the other hand, the government has to think through what, what are the incentives yeah. for them to come into the sector, mm-hmm. right? What typically is an incentive is to say, look, you know what? One way to scale your business, you typically need financing for it. So if you come into the formal sector, in some ways we can find a way uh, to provide you some, you know, cheaper financing that you try to get at a bank. But the informal guys, even at the banks, they, it's hard for them to get financing. But financing is one. Uh, some programs around training, capacity mm. building. So governments who've actually done it quite successfully have 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 been able to to provide that. But I think bringing them more and more over time into the formal sector, you'll never bring everybody. Yes. But the, that's important. Yeah. Um, on the women front, I mean, as you know, we put out a, a report uh, two years ago on, on Women Matter Africa, yes. and it's very clear that. Today, uh, this is around the world, by the way, you know, there's a huge, you know, uh, uh, gap mm-hmm. and there's a huge, we, we've quantified it because people say it's the right thing, it's 50-50 around the world, so it's the right thing to bring women into positions the, on the, uh, you know, in business or, 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 or in the public sector. But, but, you know, but, but it's not happening, right? So we said, look, maybe if we put numbers on the table, right, it will force people to think differently. So we actually mm-hmm. quantify the gap, right? Sure, yeah. And around the world, it's a $28 trillion gap. Right wow. uh, in Africa, it's a seven hundred billion dollar gap, right, of of not having gender parity, right. And we looked at companies, and we showed that uh, again, this is you know through numbers, <laughs> numbers again, yeah. that companies that have more women in the management team or on the boards perform better sure. globally. And we did the same analysis in Africa, mm-hmm. and you can show that, right? Look at you know the performance is up to twenty percent better 
if you had a woman on uh, in the management on the board, and you can understand that, right? Because women help you think differently. If you think mm-hmm. a consumer goods company, they have a much better sense for how you know people who typically shop are mostly women, so they'll have a much better sense for you know what kind of products would would be attractive, mm-hmm. which ones won't, and those kinds of things. So we think there's a huge economic imperative to uh, drive uh, more gender parity. Mm-hmm. I just give you a sense today um, in Africa, about five percent of CEOs are women, even sure. though forty percent of middle management is are women. Right. By the way, it's not it's not better in the world in the rest of the world. Yeah. <laughs> it's not it's much a better, global right? problem. Yeah. It's a global problem, mm-hmm. um, but still we have a huge dropout. What we call mm-hmm. leakage from you know senior management position from ma- middle management position to CEO, mm-hmm. right? And the question is, how do you then plug that leakage mm-hmm. on the public sector side? You know, only about twenty four percent of African women in parliaments, mm-hmm. and about twenty two percent. It's less than twenty five percent in parliaments and in cabinet. Mm-hmm. Right? Again, that's only a quarter. Mm-hmm. Right? So. What you know, what it, what the uh, Prime Minister of Ethiopia has done, or what President Kagame has done, okay. to say, look, you know, we will have gender parity in cabinet mm. is a huge move, mm. right? And we'd love to see more. Mm. You know, you start there, and then eventually it trickles down, right? Mm. So we'd love to see more more countries doing that. Yeah, definitely. I just think you should just repeat that part about women helping things go better, just for the producer on the other side. We seem to <laughs> oh, for the producer as well. Yeah, you okay, know, okay, just okay. so people can understand. Yeah, yeah. He, he needs to hire more women, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like get more women involved in such. Now, I did want to ask a few questions with regards to what's going on in the continent currently. Um, so, okay, so I, if you can help us understand, because Nigeria is, is one of the most um, important economies within Africa by sheer numbers, right? But then, uh, it's the largest because it's the largest, yes. yes. Um, and also, they're the high, I think they're amongst the highest consumers, if I'm not mistaken. Well, the highest, well, the, by far the the biggest population is. Uh-huh. 180 million people, followed by Egypt at sort of, I don't know, what, 100 or so, yeah. right? Um, and Ethiopia is also about 100. Yeah. Uh, and then the largest economy, right? Yeah. The close to $400 billion of uh, GDP. Okay. There's, and then, um, you know, just touching on all that, so then a, a report came out, and I just want you to debunk it if it's true, if it's not true, about how Nigeria is now the number one poverty capital of the world or the amount of people living under, um, you know, living in extreme poverty and they've now overtaken India. Yes. So for somebody who doesn't understand numbers like myself or like the average person, why then are they still an important economy? How do you, you know, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. because it just seems almost like contradictory, the two yeah. statements. Well, yeah, I, I hear you. And, and the reality, you know, I was shocked. So Bill Gates did this presentation at the uh, last, um, last UN week, mm-hmm. right? I think he actually did it to, uh, to all the presidents as well. Where it's a fascinating presentation. It all comes from um, uh, the book Factfulness as well, uh, where you, he literally shows that if you look at you know people living in extreme poverty, I think in the next fifty years, you know, two thirds of them in the world will be in Nigeria and I think uh, the DRC, like two thirds oh of all the people living in extreme poverty. Right? It's crazy. It's crazy. Um, so that's something that needs to be addressed. Um, so and the bank, for example, the World Bank just put out this. Thing called the Human Capital Development Index, where they 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 rank countries. So they have the ease of doing business, where they rank on you know how open it is and easy for businesses to operate. Mm. Now the the human capital is about you know education and health and these metrics. And Nigeria was 152 out of 157. Right. So the challenge is you know it's a big economy. Mm. Uh, a lot happens there. You know a lot is produced, um, but 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 it doesn't. But the reality it doesn't affect well. The, the most of the people don't benefit from it, mm. right? So if I give you a sense, so what what the challenge they're having is, well, the number of challenges. Uh, you know, on the positive side, as Nigerian, you know, I spent I set up the McKinsey office there mm. with some some colleagues, so I, and I lived there for three years, and mm. I still go there quite often. We're going to discuss the jollof rice just now. <laughs> we'll talk, oh, we'll, we'll was talk the best cool. one. <laughs> um, 
Um, so the so they've been able to diversify the economy. They used to be very dependent on oil, mm-hmm. right? And what happens on oil is that you don't need many people to produce oil, yeah. right? So you know you produce it, it brings a lot of revenue to the government, but the average person still, you know, unemployment is still very high. People, you know, still struggle to make a living. There are, you know, on the other extreme, the couple of you know really very rich people there, mm-hmm. uh, but but most of the people are struggling to make a living, right? And the question is, and that's a big question that economics are de- uh, economists are debating is how do you uh, make sure all this growth and mm-hmm. this trickles down to the people, mm-hmm. right? The president of the African Women Bank, uh, uh, Akinadishina, always says, you know, you know, you don't eat GDP growth, right? You can't yeah. eat that. It's a good number and it's great, mm-hmm. but the average person doesn't get it. They don't eat it. So yeah. for them, it's how do I get this? How does it trickle down to me? And and again, it's an economic issue, right? It's an issue of these people don't have jobs. So without jobs, you know, you can't get in it. You can't get a living, mm-hmm. right? Um, they've now put in some social safety net type programs to say, you know, for those who don't have jobs, government, let's figure out how we can take care of you and do some of these transfers, right? Mm. So, for example, have these programs where, you know, if your kid is in school, then we'll make sure they have a meal in school or actually in Canada, they have this program, they're testing to say, you know, because they're trying to encourage girls to go to school. So mm. we'll actually pay you for, if you if you, you have a girl you send to school, we'll actually give you a payment, right? It's a conditional cash transfer, will do a transfer to you conditioned upon you sending your girl to school. So they're trying these different models. But even as economists, there's a big question around how do you get all this wealth at the country level to trickle to to the average person. China has mm-hmm. been able to do it very successfully mm-hmm. and lift people out of poverty, right? And one big angle here is, is, is agriculture. Because, you know, yes. 70, 80% of these people in rural regions in Africa and agriculture, mm-hmm. right? So that we've struggled to really get that right. But if we can unlock the power agriculture sector, um, uh, that that's one angle. The second is just jobs, because typically what happens is you're in the village and you know you're not making much, right? If, you know what typically then the model is: okay, I'll move to the city, right? This whole urbanization, by the way, we're the fastest urbanizing region in the world as Africa. Sure. Every year, yeah. 24 million Africans move to cities. So, you know, I leave the village, I come to the city, I get a job, I get a more productive job, right? So I make more money. I then take that money and I use part of it to send back to the family back home. Then back home, they then use this to buy fertilizers and to irrigate the farm. They increase the yields, they produce more, they sell more, Mm. they make more money. And that is a virtuous cycle. Yeah, it just keeps... We just have not gotten that right on the continent Mm. because you then move from the village to the city and you don't get a job, <laughs> right? Yeah. Or you don't get a more productive job. So you mm. cannot send the money back. And so that is, so in addition to solving agriculture in the village, I think solving the employment mm. issue in cities is actually critical to try to create that virtual cycle. Mm. And I think that that is so, um, you know, just you even speaking about the importance of agriculture, because this is another number that I think I heard. If I'm right, no, you hear a lot of numbers. I do. I'm like, I'm like a sponge. Um, so apparently, um, Africa currently imports thirty percent of its uh, food. Um, Is that number correct? Yeah, Something, so and we should, and we technically don't really need to be in a position where we're importing food. Yeah, we we import way too much food, right? Yeah. So we did some analysis on 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 what gets manufactured. This is more processed food, okay, right? Yeah. Or it gets manufactured. And when we looked at, you know, what do we manufacture on the continent? And the reality is um, uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a category of manufacturing called regional processing, that sort of foods and, and juices and things like that, uh, where we import a third of, of those. 
most other regions of the world import only 5 to 10%, mm. right? So we, we, we import way too much relative mm. to that. Nigeria imports, you know, billions and billions of wheat, rice, you name it every year, tomato. Right? With all that jollof, please, why is somebody uh, not just producing it there? So, so that's the problem, right? So, so the big issue and the big process around why are we importing all of this uh. when we, can, we actually have the land, we have the people, exactly. right? Why don't we produce more? And you, you see more and more countries. So Nigeria, hopefully, they've announced that by end of next year, they should be net exported of rice, mm-hmm. right? And that can, that's going to cut down. Then they're trying to do it on wheat and a number of other things. But government needs to be a lot more serious about identifying which of these products they mm-hmm. actually want to promote. Because you can't just decide, I'm going to stop importing. Mm-hmm. Right? You need people to plant it, right? So for that, you need them to have the right you know, fertilizers, right? Because you need the yields on these to be higher, right? You need them to have the right... Uh, uh, you know, to irrigate, need to, them to have mm. the right pesticides if they have those, need them to be trained on what they need to do to produce more mm. so that you can, you know, you can, you can feel, fulfill the demand, mm. right? If not, you're just going to have to import, right? And in some cases, you may also have to, to put a higher tariff on imports. That's also very controversial in some ways yeah. to say, look, you know, put a higher tariff because we want to well, promote like some sort of trade war. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, exactly. But countries have done it, right? Countries yeah. have done it because that's the way to, to make sure you don't import, you don't mm. import, you know, you, you don't export jobs, right? Because what if you're importing stuff, you, you're basically exporting, exporting jobs yeah. to that other country. They're creating the jobs that are, you know, fulfilling the demand. Okay. And then now just to touch a little bit about the African Union, the organizer here, you laugh because you know, <laughs> people have, we have this, we have a very interesting relationship with the African Union, yeah, you know. Do, it's so interesting. I did as well. <laughs> you until did. I, until I joined until, the until they managed to wheel you in. <laughs> Like join the committee, but yes. What so, about the union? <laughs> now you, now you need. Okay, now you're going to be like, now let me put on my diplomatic cap and just like answer no, the questions that they've told the way they've told me. So now you work. You're part of the African Union Reform um, Board committee. Yes. committee. Yes. So what is that? What is the main aim of that particular committee? So, so, so the way it started is um, the presidents, all presidents, got together and they realized the AU needs to be reformed, mm. right? Um, and they said, you know, how are we going to reform it? And they actually asked President Kagame. And I think it's because they saw his track record in Rwanda. And they said, well, can you help us at a continental level? Uh, and uh, and he reached out. So he invited sort of nine people to join the committee. Mm-hmm. And I was you know, fortunate. Kagame called you. I actually did get a call. <laughs> actually, I was actually on vacation in Portugal. And uh, I got a call. <laughs> And from Kagame, yeah, from his from his office saying he will call, uh, and then he called. Don't worry, be, <laughs> remain humble. I'll I'll beat you up. No, don't worry. And then, and then he called and asked me to join the the committee. Yeah, and it's nine of us, right? So, um, uh, and it's a great group of folks, right? Uh, it's a private sector people like Strive, Masiwa, and myself. It's people like Ashmiss Finance Tito uh, mm-hmm. is on it as well. Um, you have the experts of African Development Bank, Kabiruka. Um, you have Carlos Lopez, who used to run. Uh, Uneka, mm-hmm. uh, his successor Vera is on it as well, and a number of other people. We had Amina Mohammed until she went to the UN as <laughs> yeah. number two, and so she had to, she had to step, uh, down, step yeah. down from the committee. But it's a good group of folks, and we started by saying, look, you know what, um, let's understand what needs to be reformed, right? So we actually did quite a big piece of work to 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 figure out, you know, you know how what are the things that need to be reformed, you know, interviewing people, doing some outside analyses, um, and we came up with uh, uh, 20 concrete recommendations for things like, and it goes everywhere from how do we finance the AU mm. because the reality is that you know, most of the programming budget 
today is financed by donors, more than 80%. Which of is it, not right? good. So you have foreigners financing yeah. your, your budget. So, of course, you're going to do what they want to do, exactly. you to do, right? So we change that and say, you know, and, you know come on, we, we should be able to finance this. It costs us four to $400 million a year to run the AU, right? We, we, we put the programming and the administrating budget together, you know, half a billion dollars, we should be able to be able to find it. Mm. Uh, in a, got in a two trillion dollar economy, mm. right? Or <laughs> 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 all, all countries just financing yeah. themselves. So we actually came up with a model, Richard and, and Dr. Kabaruka led this of the financing front to say, look, you know, we will have a, a levy on uh, on certain items that, especially items that are not imported from other African countries. So if mm. there's an import from the outside, we'll put a small levy of zero point two percent. And you use that to finance the AU. By the way, that's what ECOWAS does today. Mm. Yes. They have a levy on on, on so, um, so that on the financing, there's been you know a bit of noise around whether it contravenes WTO rules and all that. But other countries have found a way around it, right? But the push here is to say, look, we need as Africans to finance our own development, right? Um, that's one. Two. Um, the other thing that 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 was important um, was even how the commissioners are selected, right? So there's been I heard I don't know if it's true, but I heard instances where um, you know, let's say your boss is a commissioner. You report to your boss, and I report to you. And I'm from Cameroon, and all of a sudden, Cameroon decides that now they want to put me up to be a commissioner, mm. right? And they get the votes, and then I get voted in, mm. and so I become your boss now, right? <laughs> wow! And I hear it's happened at the AU, right? Because <laughs> that's how commissions were selected, yeah. right? Countries decide, okay, I wow. want this person, yeah. and then all of a sudden, and all of a sudden, you get you get the right votes. So we yeah. decided that's change you know we need to make sure and we have amazing people across the continent right let's make sure it's a good competitive right bid that it's mm. attractive people apply to it uh you know you know as from a private sector we try to push a bit too far and you know mm. how you want to make this just competitive and let the best person win but it's also a political organization so mm. we've had to learn and also just bearing in mind as africans everything is cultural it's my elder everything it's this is a long exactly. thing yeah we need to have all the regions represented <laughs> and you have the to right have leader this, uh, <laughs> but we've, we've gone to a good place yeah. where we said look you know what we want you know we'll we'll get a, f- a firm to help us identify candidates mm-hmm. we'll actually have a uh, committee of what we call eminent Africans who mm-hmm. actually review review this. We'll get this kind of strategy interview, right? Um, and then at the end of the day, you know the uh, the uh, you know the AU um, commission um, and and the summit, the presidents will have to make a decision. Mm. But it will be based on having good quality Africans applying to these roles, and hopefully the best person will emerge. Mm. Right? And we'll make sure we have the right regional representation and the right gender representation. Right? So it's a bit of a of a balance between mm-hmm. the two, but, it, but it'll be. It's it's you know it's much more aligned with how you would typically in the private sector find the best person for a role, mm. right? So it's all of that to you know to sanction. So for I'll give you another example. So you know a lot of countries were just not even paying their dues, mm. right? And what happens if you haven't paid your dues? Your president cannot speak during the summit. Oh my god! Right. So right before the I'd summit, I'd love to be a fly on the wall when right. you tell someone you can, you have not paid your bills. Okay, you no, can't talk. No, but, 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 and they enforce it, right? If you hadn't paid, you will not wow. speak, right? But what happens is before the summit, they'll pay like ten or twenty percent, right? Can okay, you give us examples? Just of... for, no. <laughs> actually, don't. I don't remember the examples. Just for, just for you to be able to speak. So now, actually, at this summit, they just passed a new sanctions yeah. regime, right? Which is much tougher. Yeah. Right. I don't know exactly where we ended up, but you know, we were pushing to say, look, you know, what, if you have not paid in full. We shouldn't be able it's to not speak, possible, yeah. right? So that that will you know, again force <laughs> countries to pay. So it's all of that two two things like you know the AU is just so far removed from the average citizen. Yeah. Right? The average citizen just doesn't know what the AU does. So a lot of what do we need to do to get the AU much closer to mm. to the people, right? So you'll see a lot more communication, a lot more even on social media what what the AU is doing, 
also getting input from you know mm. the people in, in our process we spend quite a bit of time just getting input from what people want to see at the AU right? mm. so now so long story short we had this 20 recommendation they've been all approved by um, by by the by the summit by all the presidents and this we've set up they set up a reform unit in the chairperson's office okay and they're in charge of executing all these reforms okay and and do you think that i mean it sounds like a bad question but it's an honest one because i think a lot of people unfortunately when it comes to the au I'll bait one or two things that have changed, you know, recently. Everybody kind of thinks that it's just going to end there. It's not going to actually, you know what I mean? It's not going to be implemented. And when you have a kind of like a rotating seat with, with an AU chairperson and so forth, it kind of feels that if, you know, when there's changes, then what does that mean for these policies that have been, the, this reform um, yeah. that's been put in place? Well, How is that being secured? Well, we've actually, we've actually embedded it because a lot of these reforms are now, they've actually been approved okay. by uh, the, the summit. Right, okay. So the president have actually approved it, yeah. and they're being implemented. Yeah. So I think that, and what you wanted to do is make sure, you know, during this last year when Kagame was leading both the reform unit but also was the chair of the mm-hmm. AU, we used that opportunity to try to, you know, pass as many of these uh, okay. as possible. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure that President Sisu has taken over uh, will continue that. Yeah. But also there's a reform unit in the chairperson's mm-hmm. office that's, that's headed yeah. by uh, an ex-minister from Cameroon, actually, uh, yeah. Mr. Mukukumbunjo. Okay. And there's a whole team, yeah. and they're really driving the, the execution. So I'm not, I'm not worried about whether these are mm. going to be okay. executed. The question is, is this going to be enough yeah. to make sure, you know, when we set back five years from now, we all see the AU playing a very different and much more productive mm. role across the continent. Now, the question of the free trade agreement, where some countries have signed on, others haven't. Yes. What are your thoughts around that? Um, just about, you know, do you think that the free trade agreement is something that's important? Is it not important? And why do you think, if it, if you think it is important, why do you think certain countries have been hesitant to step in? Mm. So, yes, yeah, so, I mean, I think the free trade important is absolutely, it's not important, it's critical. Okay. We talk about Africa, but the reality is 54 countries, mm. right? Of which you know six or seven accounts for seventy percent of all that GDP, mm. right? So there are a number of small countries, right? Mm. Now you cannot go and you know negotiate with China or India or with the US, you know, when with all these small countries, mm. right? They'll just take advantage of us, which is you know in some cases what's happening. So the question: How do we f- create one block, right? And uh, and 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 you know have one integrated common market as as a continent? Now I'm actually not worried about it. I'm, we're going to get there, right? This country's a bit worried, especially mm. some of the larger countries. But you know, South Africa is on board now. Nigeria is going to come on board. I'm pretty sure, right? So I'm not, I'm not worried we about hope it. Or. Yeah, we hope <laughs> no, they'll come on board. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. But there's one thing to actually have this in place on paper. There's another thing to actually execute it in practice. Right? Mm-hmm. So the challenge we might is going to be more execution in practice. So for example, we have these regional blocks, right? And so, but when a truck leaves uh, Lagos today to Accra. Right, the you know, ideally they should be able not to you know they they don't need to stop at the border and start negotiate because you know typically they should be able to go all the way there, right? But you stop at each of these borders and mm-hmm. somebody tries to get something from you and all of that, right? Mm-hmm. So, my question is more around once we have this in place, mm-hmm. how do you you know in all of the negotiations with the outside world and all that having one one common African position will be fine, mm-hmm. right? But more in the execution of you know this product, you know, one country has already charged a duty. And so you can, you know, drive across to get to the next country or the next three countries, right? How do you make sure that happens in practice? I mm. think that is where we're going to, that's where we need to spend time going forward on making sure on execution at okay. the country and at the regional economic community level, yeah. it works. Okay. And before we let you go, so in my mind, I was trying to kind of think if I could give you a post 
in life. I think I'd create an imaginary one. I don't think you could be president of Africa if such a person. I, I, this I, is I, like a yeah, and you look like you're like no, no please, please, I don't want no, those problems, no. you know. And also, you're just like like you can just see that that's not where you're at. You're like you want to fix it. You don't want to be shaking hands with Obama, although you do um, <laughs> shake hands with Obama. Yes, he does. Um, but <laughs> that was exciting. But yes. Was it exciting? So, cool. what was he like? I met him twice actually. It's funny. Um, and the second time he was like, Acha, no, so good like, to wish, see you. Yeah, so. right, exactly, exactly. I was like, yeah, Acha, I remember you. Uh, no, he's, he's just like a cool guy, right? So, yeah. we had, so once uh, it was in the US, we, um, when we set up Yali as McKinsey, we helped yes, him yes, set yes. it up. And so I uh, had this picture opportunity with him. It was like one of those uh, quick, yeah. ha, 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 picture, picture. Right. And, you know. Uh, and then the last one was at ALA when you know we hosted his Obama fellows, yeah. and uh, and then he came to speak to them, and then we had yeah. a separate small uh, lunch with him and a few of his delegation and some of our ALA. Did you eat salad at the lunch you did? Hey, uh, you were trying to be healthy because you know that Michelle well, is like <laughs> well, Michelle wasn't there, but yeah, so uh, but yeah, the lunch was good. He, even he commented, he's like, "Oh, this is cool. You guys serve really. The students have great lunch." I'm like, "Well, this is not what they <laughs> do on a regular basis. Let's be clear." Yeah, and he was excited about the lunch. So yeah, so I mean, yeah. you know, but he was just a regular person yeah. and he was quite quite he was yeah. quite cool. Okay, before I actually close off the interview, now there's one question I did want to ask. Yes. Um, you know, America's been very successful in branding themselves um as the land of, you know, the American dream. I'll bait what's going on now, but do you know what I mean? Um, and I think that when it comes to music and culture and everything that's been happening in Hollywood as in general, that's played a huge role in them being able to make America be, I was not make America great, great again. again. So yeah, yeah. But to make, you, yeah, to, uh, so, so that young Africans were kind of like, if I really want to make it, I need to go to America. They've mm-hmm. been able to do that. Now, because we have a population which is made up of a lot of young people and people are influenced by popular culture quite a lot, you know, and I think that it can play a huge role, mm-hmm. um, in kind of shifting the narrative of Africa, you know, in a, in a big way. So now when you look at what's going on in Nigeria, for example, for me personally, um, <coughs> I feel as though what Nigerian music uh, has been able to do and what Nollywood has been able to do has been able to brand Nigeria in the most incredible way. I spend so much time there and then I speak to people who've never been to Lagos and they describe so many things. I'm like, eh. I'm like, you know, it's not what it is, but the beauty of it is incredible, you know? And sometimes I feel as though um, African leaders and and such and perhaps like you and like all you serious kind of people I feel as though there's not enough of an emphasis of like, this is something that we can actually capitalize on yeah. the culture of yeah. Africa and the brand of Africa being able to be changed through. Do you get what I mean? Absolutely. So what are your thoughts around that? Because I think that that's a huge market we're not looking at in, in Nigeria. And um, when we were in Port Harcourt, somebody said about how Nollywood were, were one of the biggest, um, the biggest, um, employers in Nigeria, mm. not just because of the actual Nollywood production, but everything that everything came around, around it, yeah. everything around yeah, it. Yeah. So how do we tap into not that? Sure. Because that's something that nobody's like saying that this. It's always it's yeah. still being seen as that, a I just totally be. Agree. I mean, how do we tap into no yeah. the culture on the continent? Right. First, I think we've come a very long way. To yeah. be fair, right. Ten years ago, yeah. nobody in South Africa was listening to Nigerian music. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's be very clear, yeah. right? I look at how that has completely changed it's and the totally collaboration changed, between yeah. you know, South African artists or East African artists, Nigerian artists, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think it's come a long way. I think there's a lot more that we need to do, yeah. right? But this is where we need people like you, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> to come and help us figure, you know, I don't know what needs to be done. It's not my space, yeah. right? But it's very clear that branding Africa, this is a core component to branding. 
There's also a core component. I think a lot of people, when they come to the continent, you know, they, yeah, they want to make a difference. Mm. But also, you know, at least when I put a business hat on, mm. they also want to make sure they can make some money, right? Because mm. they have to do that for the shareholders. And this is one area where they can actually do both. Mm. And you're starting to see some, some investments. So you look at, you know, this private equity firms who just invested in, I think it was Marvin Records in mm-hmm. Nigeria and things yeah, like yeah, that, yeah, right? Yeah. So Trace. Oh, you know the Mavens. Yeah. Hey, you're gangster, yeah, yeah. okay? Uh, no, I try, <laughs> I try, I try. You're low key. Uh, anyway, continue. Uh, uh, I try, I try, I try. I like partying as well. I used to own a nightclub here, by the way. Um, so. Which nightclub? Divine Lounge. Well, that was a long time ago. That was before your time. <laughs> but, um, um, but yeah, but, but so, so you're starting to see a lot more, I think, business people paying attention to uh-huh. it, right? But the question is, how can we do, we can do so much more, right? Yeah. Look at how Nollywood, or, or you look at Bollywood for India, right? Mm. And how do we do that for, for the continent? I think, you know, I think um, Nollywood is trying. I think the quality yeah. of the movies are, is improving and, you know, and it's come a long way, right? This is where, you know, we need you guys to come together and, you know, probably a combination mm. of, you know, more of the culture people, some people on the business side, some people on the policy side to really think even at a continental level because I think right now you see it more in, 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 in sporadic yeah. in Nigeria yeah. you see some here mm. see some in East Africa probably mm-hmm. more of a Kenya Tanzania right mm. but how and I guess there's some Arabic you know in the north but how do we come together and have mm. more of a pan-African view around this mm-hmm. right I, would, you know, I think that would be something that we should do yeah definitely and come because you, you said it on record and now I know things don't worry when the presentations come in the proposals if you don't answer I'm going to send a clip of this and say do you remember yeah. no, no come in I think it's very cool I think we should yeah. do it cool because I do think there needs to be a creative industry report but as I was saying the position that I think that you could fill in Africa if there was a one kind of Africa which I know people do, I'm not saying that it exists I'm saying fictional just imagine, let your imagination right, take right. you there. You almost could be like, you could be the minister of almost like finance or something for that <laughs> position. You'd have to fight Tito Mboweni because we know he likes things. <laughs> he likes to have finance. Right? <laughs> he li- you know, he likes the continent. He yeah. likes the continent. He's the, tw- he's the tweeter in chief. <laughs> but my friend, used to say, my friend used to say, you know, you have to ask the president to one one Africa. Would you be happy not to, not to be minister of finance of Africa yeah. versus president of your country? Right. Yeah. It's an interesting thing, right? You know, what so, would you prefer to do? You? Right? No, no, not me. I just yeah. in, in general, it's hard to talk about one united Africa. Would you rather run your small country, or, or would you rather be minister uh, of agriculture of the continent? Of the continent, right? yeah. And for you, what's that answer? But I don't want to do either. <laughs> like, uh, I just want to, you know, play uh, help behind the scenes, help, like you said, my, you know, for me, it's all about, you know, would it have mattered to Africa that I lived? Yeah. And uh, try to, you know, help behind the scenes and make a difference. That's what's important for me. And so that's what you want, you would want your legacy to be, Absolutely. to have. Okay. Absolutely. To have made a difference on the continent. Made a difference on the continent. All good. Thank you very much. I'll tell Don Jazzy we chatted. Because I have a feeling you know him. He came to ALM. <laughs> I knew it. When you said that, I was like, Tega, and yeah. I'm just going to be like, guys, he's do a, you know XYZ? I have another story about him. But be no, no, no. Share the story. Share the story. <laughs> no, so he came to ALM. Then he brought a couple of, I don't remember the artists he brought. Yeah. And, and they had the room next to me. Yeah. Right. And, you know, we had 300 people who came to the, to the conference. Yeah. Uh, um, and you know the next day Fred and I were opening and we were launching it and these guys were just making noise you know how you artists and your people like to make noise yeah these guys were just making noise and uh, and so I woke up at 3 in the morning I went and knocked at the door I was like guys can you keep it down and they're like the who's this guy blah blah sleep, blah yeah. whatever so then I could barely see I go up on stage and I open it and then they realize I'm the one who convened the, <laughs> the, the summit where they're at so they all came to me to they're apologize they all came to all of, all of a sudden they all came to me to apologize like oh I'm so sorry like oh god we're sorry but the, always, it was fun to hang out with <laughs> yeah. them. Yeah, and then when you think Africa state of mind, what? Uh, how would you define that? Africa state of mind. 
Um, well, uh, I, I would say today it's positive, it's um, exciting, uh, but there's still a lot to do. Okay. Okay. Very balanced, like a numbers person. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very Thanks. much. Head to lifepodcast.fm to find out more on the positive changes people are making on the continent in Africa State of Mind. Subscribe to this podcast at lifepodcast.fm or on your favorite podcast app. Subscribing to a live podcast is free.